humans are part of nature. We tend to think that we are above it, but we are not. And all of these things are just trying to make a living just like we are. So the point being, the battle of survival is real. Welcome to the Beautifully Broken Podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Kimmel, and on this show, we explore the survivor's journey, practitioners making a difference, and the therapeutic treatments and transformational technology that allow the body to heal itself. Witness the inspiration we gain by navigating the human experience with grace, humility, and a healthy dose of mistakes. Because part of being human is being beautifully broken. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Beautifully Broken podcast. I am here with Holly Ahern, professor of microbiology from State University of New York at Adirondack. Holly, welcome to the show. Freddie, thanks for inviting me. Glad to be here. Well, I'm so excited. You know, I know we could probably talk for five or six hours and just nerd out over all things microbiology, biology and the human body, cell cultures. But I want to talk about on this episode, I think we want to go into Lyme disease a little bit, which is something where you have an incredible area of expertise. Can you go into kind of how you found your way into really studying Lyme and why it became a topic that you've become an expert on? Sure. I mean, my story is similar to a lot of other people, especially a lot of moms that when your child is affected by something and you do a deep dive to try to come up with solutions and try to return them you know, to a functional state, you become an expert in general. But it just so happens that you know, the disease that affected my daughter was an infectious disease caused by a bacteria. And that is my area of expertise to begin with. So it became sort of a natural you know, being able to look at the science of the bacteria and then what it was doing to when the infection ensued. And, you know, it was all a goal. My goal was to get my daughter out of the state she was in because I have to say medicine, typical medicine had no idea um, what she was dealing with. They, in some cases, didn't actually believe that she was having real physical issues. And so, you know, I, I became a mama bear and decided we were going to figure this out. So I started my deep dive there. And, you know, what I learned along the way made me realize just how wrong there, you know, the, the disease, the imagined disease is just not what the reality is. And so I, along the way, founded also an advocacy organization and I serve as a, a scientific advisor for another advocacy organization. And one is, basically, uh, you know, patient education and advocacy on the state and federal levels, the government levels. And then the other one, you know, our primary focus, the name of the organization is Focus on Lyme, and our primary focus is to develop a clinically accurate diagnostic test for this disease for all stages of the disease, early on in the infection, and then later on in the infection, once the bacteria have established themselves in the body, because that's the you know, if you want to call it chronic Lyme disease or whatever, there's lots of names for this particular condition. But the point is, it's a real thing and uh, the bacteria are involved in it. And we need to figure that out because it's affecting a large number of people. 
Amazing. I want to unpack a lot of those topics you touched on. So you said people's understanding of the disease is not the reality. Can you relate that to what your daughter was experiencing? What was her experience with Lyme disease? Was it a rash and a fever and she was done with six weeks of doxycycline or was it different than that? No, my daughter's journey started with a tick bite and it was in May, but it was an adult tick. So we took her to the doctor because, you know, in where I'm from, upstate New York, it isn't like Lyme disease isn't unknown. And we, it, it's known to be transmitted by ticks. So we thought the best thing to do would be to take her to the physician and let the physician tell us what to do. So that's what we did. So we brought her and the tick and the tick got sent off for testing, but it turns out they didn't test the tick. They just looked at the tick and said, yep, that's a tick. And this was at our Department of Health labs is what they told us. So, well, actually they told us it was the right kind of tick to transmit Lyme disease, but not whether the tick actually transmitted, you know, if it it itself carried any microbes. And then the doctor told us, you know, wait and watch, even though the tick had been attached for at least overnight, because its location was very obvious in the morning. It was not there when she went to bed the night before. So somewhere in that 12-hour window of time, the thing had found a place to attach and attach. And he said, wait and watch. And if she develops a bullseye rash, come back and we'll treat her with antibiotics. Or if she has, you know, viral-like symptoms, like fever, flu-like symptoms, come back and at that point we'll treat her. Other than that, she's safe because most ticks don't transmit. They have to be attached for a really long time and it's really rare and, you know, not to worry about it. So, okay, that's what the doctor told us to do. So that's exactly what we did. And, you know, she was, she didn't experience symptoms for a while. So it wasn't in the immediate time frame. you know, within three weeks, four weeks, six weeks. It was a few months later, about four months later, actually, that she developed the flu-like illness. By that time, it was fall. And, you know, at this stage, it could actually have been, you know, some kind of viral illness at that point. However, Looking back, I'm pretty convinced these were the, the first symptoms when the bacteria started to you know, make their move. So she got diagnosed with an ear infection at that point, treated with antibiotics, not doxycycline, but an antibiotic at that point. And so the symptoms started to resolve. And okay, great. You know, so nobody, nobody connected the dots to the tick bite. I don't even think we mentioned it to the doctor at that point. And then a while later when she was had actually gone to college and um, you know, we all remember our college days when you're a freshman in college and you're a member of a sports team. And I suspect there were lots of things going on that, you know, I would rather probably not know about, but you know, late <laughs> nights and not taking the best care of yourself kind of thing. Sure. You know, she said, she called and said, you know, I, I'm feeling pretty bad. Can I come home for the weekend? And I just really need a weekend to rest. And we went and got her, brought her home she went to bed and the next morning she woke up and, you know, she was pretty much paralyzed. She couldn't get out of bed. She had, um, from there, the symptoms just escalated. She had a uh, searing headache. It was pain, but it was more like tingling, burning pain. Nerve pain. Nerve pain, in other words. And her left side of her body went completely numb. You know, so at that stage, we took her back to the doctor and nobody had a clue what it could possibly be. And, you know, she was basically home in bed, unable to function, despite multiple rounds of visits to doctors and specialists. And she was there for, 
you know, two or three months until a coincidence, a vast coincidence happened that my husband was, who is a, a public school teacher, he attended a in-service at school and it happened to be about Lyme disease. And he listened to his colleague talk about her experience and came home that night and said, you know what, this, it sounds like what Kelly has might be Lyme disease. Should we look at that? So we went back to the doctor and lo and behold, they never did a test up to that point for Lyme disease, but she was actually lucky because she did test positive and started treatment at that point. But by that point, I had started to do quite a bit of research and I realized that this was over the heads of most medical providers. So we went out of our network to see a, a Lyme disease specialist downstate and treatment started at that point. And you know, I, I have to say at that point, she went on long-term antibiotics and that did allow her to return to college, but it did not return her to her previous functional state. And um, that was where you know, the next round of treatments were, were um, oh, well, you know, let's go see the neurologist, let's go see the thisologist and thatologist. And, you know, mostly it was just like, well, you know, this is, it's not Lyme disease anymore. This is something else. We don't know what it is. And uh, no more, you know, just too bad. And she'll get, she'll either get over it, she won't. We even had one doctor suggest that she was making it up because she was a girl, you know, so that all that brings out the like I said, the mama bear. And so from there, we decided we were going to figure this out. You know, there's enough science out there that was available that we were able to come up with some solutions for her. So she's returned to, I'd say, mostly she got most of everything back and she's doing well now. So mm, that's an incredible, incredible story that I know. Oh, there's so many parents. I mean, there's so many parents that want to be able to say what you're saying right now. That's their yeah. dream. That's her sole dream in life. And I do want to facilitate, you know, these conversations so people can can really, with new information, we can make better choices. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's some really interesting things you said about she went on these long-term antibiotics. And when they did restore some level of functionality, they didn't really return your daughter to what her state of vitality was, not nearly at all. So what do you, what do you think the limitations are with even an IV antibiotic, that's in the bloodstream, should reach anywhere and everywhere. Well, you know, they do reach everywhere, except when the bacteria could care less about the antibiotic. And that is the bacteria that we're dealing with, which is really burdorferi, which is the cause of Lyme disease. It's a spirochete. It is a remarkable life form. I, you know, as a microbiologist, I deeply appreciate all of its uh, capabilities, but yeah. as a you know, somebody who's been affected by it. I also hate it because it's just like, wow, you know, how tricky can you be? They're not your average bacteria. And the medical treatment, which is right from the 1980s, hasn't changed since the 1980s, considers this infection as a routine bacterial infectious disease, which is, yep, you treat it with antibiotics, the bacteria are killed, your body fights off the rest of it and you return to health. And anything that happens beyond that is, we don't know what the problem is, it's probably you. But what we now know from microbiological studies and also from animal research and also human studies, that the bacteria are, if they are not cap treated early, so if, you, if the antibiotic does not start within the first week or two weeks of infection, the bacteria are highly modal swimmers in one form. So they get in, as soon as they get into the bloodstream, they go off into places where, you know, they are, they love collagen rich tissues. So they mm. head for the 
joints, they head for the connective tissue, they head for uh, the nervous system, they head for the heart, you know, because we have linings around those organ systems. And so they go to those places, they establish an infection, and then they start to colonize. And spirochetes have a very remarkable way of colonizing, and that would be they join together and then they create what in uh, microbiology vernacular is called a biofilm, which just basically means a big city of bacteria. And at that stage, they, some of the bacteria also go into what's referred to as a persister state, which is, and actually that starts very early after infection too. And the persister state, what that, you know, think about what the word means. If mm-hmm. something persists, it means it doesn't go away. So in the persister state, they are metabolically different from when they were spirochetes and antibiotics do not affect them. They are tolerant, and you can also use the word resistant. They could care less in that state if there are antibiotics present or not. And then when the antibiotics are removed, they can reactivate. So it's this kind of cycle of the bacteria in persister state. You remove the antibiotics, and then they reactivate. But it's not in a typical time period because the bacteria are in charge of this. And so they will reactivate when they feel the need to do that, whatever the signal to them happens to be. And Mm. that is the big issue because if you treat an infection caused by a bacteria such as this in a routine fashion, you're not going to remove them all. And if you leave any behind, they could be able to start an active infection again. So, and I mean, that's also part of the problem. What are the symptoms of these is it due to the infection itself or is it due to something that the presence of the bacteria is causing your physiology to respond to? And that would include your immune system. So, you know, the immune system detects the presence of the bacteria, but the bacteria have been able to tell the immune system to stand down. So at the same time, one arm of the immune system is promoting inflammation. The other arm of the immune system, which is supposed to clear the bacteria are being told, nope, you know, don't worry about it. So, you know, the, the forms of our immune system, the cells are being told completely opposite things in terms of what they're supposed to be doing, which as you might expect, can really mess with the rest of our functioning. So it is a two-pronged issue. It is the infection itself, and it is the immune system's response to the infection that leads to the long-term symptoms. So every, and I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of doctors with my own personal journey with Lyme through the podcast, through, you know, being in these worlds of people that are looking for different answers because we're not getting the results you want. So everybody who I've ever resonated with, and I said that person, okay, that is their information, their, their knowledge, it's worth its weight in gold. And for me, what you just said, you know, it's a two pronged approach we have branches of the immune system, which I don't think people, you think about it's one thing, we're, we're going to stop invaders, we're going to eradicate the bug. When we mention the word immune system, I think we have guardians at the gate, and then we have people that are trying to put out the fire. So like you just said, you know, we've got this raging infection, and then we've also got this low level of inflammation that's constant and not leaving the body. And when we get this perfect storm, we get neurological Lyme, we get the shooting nerve pain, we get the people that are the walking wounded that look normal, but just want to lay in bed and they have absolutely no drive to do what it is you do. 
I think the other thing that you mentioned, you said spirochete little swimmers, you said they're going to go where the immune system doesn't want to go. Could you just describe like what, because I know what a spirochete is, but I think it'd be valuable for people listening, what that shape actually looks like and how it evades our immune system. So the spirochete shape of the bacteria is a like a drill. It's a spiral drill-shaped corkscrew, if you will. And that is the modal stage of the bacteria. So they are in that stage while they are moving. But once they get to a tissue and attach to that tissue and start to colonize, they change forms. So they drop their cell walls, they roll up into little balls, they become very long and stringy looking. So they develop a different morphological form. And it's not one different morphological form, it's actually many of them. And also microbiological research has shown that our immune system, that the outer surfaces of these things look different to the immune system. So now you have a, an agent that when it's in its spirochete form is you know, looking one way to the immune system. And then as it's changing, it becomes a whole different thing. And so the immune system doesn't, it's just like, well, that's not the thing that was started this. What is this over here? So that's, what I mean by spirochete. But the problem is if, if somebody looks up really a burdorferi on the internet, does a Google search, or you look up a spirochete on, as a Google search, what you'll see are the modal swimming corkscrews doing, you know, they're moving through a viscous fluid, for example, mm-hmm. which is, by the way, something else that's convenient for spirochetes is because they look like drills, they can act like drills. So they can move through very viscous materials, uh, like our tissues is what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once they reach the connective tissues, that's, that's a protected niche because the vascular system, you know, those tissues are not well vascularized, meaning blood vessels don't necessarily go there, which is why if you have a connective tissue injury, if you pull a tendon or if you rip a ligament or something, it takes a long time to heal those because they are just not as vascular as other tissues in the body. So that also mm-hmm. plays a role in why antibiotics, it's very hard to get antibiotics to those locations. But you know, the spirochetes drill their way out of the blood vessels and drill their way into those tissues. And they're almost untouchable at that point. That's why you need to catch them early. Brilliant. And you're saying things that I'm seeing. So from my experience, what's very valuable is to hear from a microbiologist. And you're saying that these tissues, collagen-like structures, the joints, these are not tissues that are receiving the vascular supply chain that a muscle belly is or a right. vein. And, and what I'm seeing is Wow, you know, you being on, like, let's just give an example. Let's say, you know, one outside of the box modality people look at for Lyme is ozone, ozone injections. Ozone can be injected into the blood. You can pull the blood out and oxygenate it, send it back into the body. And I've always seen that there, well, there can be a boost because you're oxygenating the body. When someone stops these modalities, they often have a regression in symptoms because it's really not reaching the collagen, the joints. And the other thing you said that was fascinating to me is you said, drop their shell. Now, I just came across an article, it must have been two weeks ago, where the shell, the shell it can be a component that actually aggravates and activates the immune system into an autoimmune response. And I was reading an article there, it aspirated a joint. 
and they had pulled all this. It was all these, if you can imagine, it's like a, it's like going to the beach and seeing these seashells. They had found all this debris from the Borrelia inside the joint, which was causing, you know, this woman had this rheumatoid factor in her hands mm-hmm. and knees. And while they couldn't find the Borrelia, they did find these piles of shells. That's going to gross some people out at home. Well, so interestingly enough, in the biofilm, the substance that you're talking about, here's a big word, which I'm so proud of you for reading that article, Freddie. That's really, that's a very impressive article to read. So the chemical that we're talking about is called peptidoglycan, and it is part of the bacterial, the outer coating as a shell, as you put it. When I read that paper, because rheumatologists were the major authors on that, I noted that they decided that, well, actually, I have to say they gave credit to the fact that they weren't sure whether it was debris, like, you know, dead bodies left behind, uh-huh. or if it was due to the presence of the bacteria. And the one thing they left out was biofilms are built out of peptidoglycan. So all those debris mm. that the bacteria are, you know, as they change forms and they release all that, they keep it around them. And they use it as part of their package because when they go back into spiral state, they can grab it and put it back and, you know, use it as building blocks to build their cell wall back. So that little option wasn't mentioned in that article. But again, Mm -hmm. it's because one of the authors on that paper was Dr. Alan Steer, who was the person who discovered it, you know, discovered that this was a spiroketal infection to begin with back in the day and hasn't really changed his opinions much since this discovery in 1980, you know, so actually it was 1982 by the time they finally figured out what was going on. He just, you know, worked on it in the seventies and he feels very strongly that this is autoimmune because why he's a rheumatologist, which what do rheumatologists study? They study autoimmune attack. So the jury is not done with that. And the problem is when you have bias in science, it's very hard to dispel that bias, even in the face of good evidence to the contrary. So there are other hypotheses as to what could be the source of that peptidoglycan that need to be investigated. And you know, on another day, we'll, we can talk a little bit about that in terms of using the immune system to find out exactly what it is that the body is responding to, because that's something called an immunosignature. And that's technology that I think is going to change the face of all this pretty rapidly. And, um, mm. you know, so, but that's, that's like a whole another five hour thing. So yes, yes. And <laughs> but of we're course, getting there is what I'm yeah, trying to say. We're, we're getting there. We really are. And again, you know, I, I just want to revisit it's, it is this, what kept me running in circles and spending so much money is the compartmentalization of our medical system. You know, you're going to go see an immunologist or you're going to see a chronic pain or a physical therapist or, you know, and you just go around and you're having all these people who specialize, but they, what they, from my experience, what they specialize in is their opinion and not necessarily, there needs to be some way where we can all pull back and get a bird's eye view and be like, well, let's see what Holly says, because she's a microbiologist. You know, this is a really important part of the puzzle. We've got, you can envision the body as the sandbox of all of these microbes and human cells. And how's everybody playing together? That's going to play into your chronic pain for sure. For sure. I think that's fascinating. I was going to try to say peptidoglycan. Is that right? <laughs> peptidoglycan. 
peptidone spiking. That's what that yeah. means. Protein and sugar. Okay, great. So this mm-hmm. is why, again, I love the overlap. So things that I've found before I knew what the heck was going on that made me feel better, five-day fast, nothing, just water. I would have a dramatic reduction in pain. And I would imagine that there are some elements of the immune system that we're going around and going into this level of autophagy, eating up some degrees and, and crepitus in the joints. And I was finding relief from, um, yeah, it's, it's always, it's always fascinating when you find those, well, you come up with an idea that could be why I was experiencing a reduction in pain from giving my body a break just to kind of clean house, if you will. Well, and there's science there too, Freddie, as you probably already know, because whatever led you to do that five-day fast, you know, the science says that fasting resets your immune system. So by fasting, you send all kinds of signals to all parts of your body, but one of them is the immune system. And part, you know, you got to think about that. All right, so you're not eating, your body goes into starvation mode and it's like, all right, what do we need to do to survive besides find food? And that certainly is one of those things. And there's plenty of science that supports that. Yes. And challenging to do in a weakened state when you do feel that level of fatigue and brain fog. I I understand that, you know, I understand that it's not doable for everybody. And by no means is that like a medical recommendation by anybody on this podcast. But I have, you know, there were many, many camps that said this can be very, very helpful. And I think it's the senescent immune cells that tend to, it's almost like your immune cells tend to live. If we imagine it's like somebody walking around with an old computer program and they're still operating one way of the belief that the body is under this immediate attack from a spirochete, that that message can continue to play out. And by going into a fast, some of those cells are actually eaten up by the body and and we do find some relief. I mean, you mentioned autophagy and that is turning out to be something that, you know, more research is being done on that because its role in all this is becoming clearer. And, you know, I know that there's a role of autophagy in Lyme disease and Borrelia because one of the antigens on the surface of Borrelia is actually the don't eat me signal that our own cells have, you know, it's like, don't eat me, don't eat me. And so that, in other words, the bacteria themselves are using our own signals to say, no, just let me alone. I'm going to go do what I want to do. I mean, their goal is not to kill us or even, they just want a nice warm place to live. They want lots of food. We just happen to not appreciate that as much, you know, like that their actual hosts, the animals that live out in nature that they are called the reservoirs, right? So all those animals, it's like, all right, you want to set up residence, go ahead, because we're going to live, you know, if you're a mouse, you're going to live, you know, if you're lucky, three months, because mice are the snack food of the natural world, according to Richard Osfeld, who is, you know, an ecologist who's studied this extensively, who studied Lyme disease, the cycles of the ecological cycles of Lyme disease extensively. So, you know, if you're going to be eaten in three months, you don't need to invest a lot of time and energy into a strong immune response to something. If it wants to become part of your microbiome, go for it. But we live longer than that. And so our attitude is more along the lines of, well, maybe we don't want you in there eating our joints, so we're going to attack you. But all the lessons learned from the rodent, the reservoir hosts, which are also mammals, spill over into what our immune system is doing too. So they, in other words, they know how to trick the mouse immune system. We're not the same as a mouse, but we have enough components that they can trick us too. And that's how they are able to establish persistent infections. Mm. 
I mean, that's another podcast episode, you know, that I've been thinking a lot about is the ecological dysfunction and its role in Lyme disease. You know, I think if you asked a person, they would say, well, you know, the deer, the deer, the problem, the deer carry the ticks into our yard and they lay it everywhere. From my understanding, it's like you said, the small white footed mouse, which if we look at the chain of predators, so we're in upstate New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, the Adirondacks, you know, one thing that's not present are wolves. Wolves were part of this area, which they were an interrupt between the deer, between the mice. And we've interrupted that from how we've integrated the land and and there's these gaps. So the natural food chain has been interrupted. And so now we have these different, you know, we have, we, and, and I always go back to, you really can't, and I think this helps in healing. You can't hate the tick. It's not the tick. The tick is just a carrier of a bacteria. It's a part, you know, we don't go around killing people because they're a carrier of certain virus, at least not yet. I mean, I hope we never get there, but that's what, that's the mentality that it's not the tick. The tick is just, it may be built like a tank and it's very resilient, but it's just living. It's trying to get a food source too. And so I think, um, is we, I think it does help to look at that narrative and we need to take out this idea that, you know, that there's this manifest destiny of humans. Nature is smarter and more brilliant and, and the design is better, period. And I think we need to live in accordance with nature to a degree. I think we'll be healthier beings, at least that's what I've come up with anyway. I'm not sure what your thoughts are there. No, I mean, humans are part of nature. We tend to think that we are above it, but we are not. And all of these things are just trying to make a living just like we are. So the point being, you know, in the natural world, if nobody had anything, it would just be, you know, the smartest, the biggest, the thing with the biggest teeth is going to win that battle. I mean, it's the battle of survival is real. So, you know, bacteria have been around billions of years before any other living thing showed up. So they're kind of good at this. You know, they, they've had a lot of time to figure this all out. Humans are new inventions and we are still works in progress, but there's a lot of, you know, people, you know, when you're living your life, you're not really deeply thinking about the fact, all of these things, you know, you're just doing what the, uh, doing what the mice are trying to do, which is to get through the day without being eaten. Right. So it's, yeah, it would be, education would be very good for people to realize that you, you know, we can be smarter than the ticks. So my own personal attitude is anything with eight legs, nothing needs eight legs. I'm not a fan of spiders and I'm not, (laughs) because actually ticks are spiders, you know, it's just like I see a spider and I run the other way. So I must, it's just like that eight leg thing is, uh, you know, it's just like, no, you don't need eight legs. You can get by six at the most, you know, so. It's problematic. So I want (laughs) to pivot and I want to go back to the mama bear because part of your story is super inspiring what you did with your natural skill set, your resources as a microbiologist. Now, I would love to hear from your science side of your experience, what were some of the things that you started to look to, to get your daughter's body back into balance? Once the antibiotics stopped working, I wouldn't say they stopped working, but they certainly did not return her. I mean, they brought her back to about 70%. So she was able to go back to college, but she was a different person when she went back. You know, she was a athlete. She would, she'd actually, before she, we, you know, she, we call it, she broke. Before she broke, she had just made All-American. She was a competitive swimmer, you know, so she swam. She broke college records in a couple of events and her name is up on the board there. 
and she made all American in a couple of events. And to come home from that two weeks later and to not be able to get out of bed and, you know, to achieve that and then to, for anybody to say, oh, well, she's just lazy or she's, you know, trying to get away from something. It's like, no, that, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding there. So like I said, the antibiotics brought her back to the point where she could function, but she still had lots and lots of symptoms. And when she made it through a semester and came home for the summer, it was like, we have to figure this out because she said, I can't, I just can't go back. I can't do this under these circumstances. It's, you know, it's hard under normal circumstances and it's killing me regularly. So that's when, you know, I mean, I've been researching this all along. And so I've been looking for, and, you know, it turns out when you start doing research, you know, regardless of where you start, you always end up looking at controversies and realizing that my daughter's story is that of thousands and thousands of other people. And that's the part that, you know, how do you discount thousands and thousands of people who all seem to have the same, you get Lyme disease and then you get this chronic illness that occurs after or during. And how do you just discount that when all these people are having the same symptoms as it's not related to Lyme? And yet that's still what they're trying to do. And by they, I'm referring to mostly infectious disease medicine, people who specialize in infectious disease who are basically stuck in the rut of, if there isn't an antibiotic that works for it, we got nothing. And that's what they have in this case. Ironically, it's recognized that syphilis does this, which is also another spirochete, but it is not acknowledged that Lyme disease, that the bacteria that cause Lyme disease have this capability. So anyway, on that front, you know, I started, I went down the rabbit hole a bit to read more about the controversies. And I realized that there were the, you know, two standards of care. I stumbled upon LymeDisease.org, which in the days that I started looking at them was still the California Lyme Disease Association and found their information to be very accurate, you know, especially looking at who the founders were and, and who was um, used, putting this information out there. So that led me to other sources that then I started looking at the controversy, trying to understand. I mean, really Lyme disease changed me. I'm a professor of microbiology, so I teach microbiology to students, students who will become medical students, students who will become nurses, physical therapists, other healthcare providers. It truly changed my understanding of microbes. So, you know, here I am teaching students about microbes. And I remember talking about Lyme disease and, you know, giving the textbook version of Lyme disease, realizing that I'm lying to them outright by saying, oh yes, here's, you know, you get bitten by the tick, you get the bullseye rash, and then you get diagnosed and treated and everything is fine. It's rare. I was lying, outright lying. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized that I was lying about a lot of other things too. But that's another story. The research that I did led me to certain, you know, so alternative approaches to this, you know, some of which made a lot of sense, the antioxidant approach, you know, dietary approaches, which we went into full bore. I have to say my daughter was 100% compliant. I sort of joked if I had said to her, all right, here's what you need to do. You need to starve yourself and then go up to the barn, stand in a water trough and grab the electric fence. She would have said, okay, if it'll make me feel better, I'll do it. So, you know, she really gave it her all. Whatever she tried, she gave it her all. And so I 
recall, you know, so I was researching, I viewed it as I was doing research. If you asked my family what I was doing, they said there was this period of two months where you obsessively <laughs> looked at everything on the internet and read everything that you could possibly read and stayed up all night. And, and I was like, no, 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 I was researching. <laughs> That's what I was doing. But one of those searches brought me to a technology called Rife. So I started researching Rife. I went down that rabbit hole and actually looked at the whole history of Rife, another sordid piece of history in the world of medicine in terms of what happened there. But as I started doing research and I started to realize what this technology was, it was they were using sound waves. It's using sound waves, which you know, it are waves, they're mechanical waves as opposed to electrical waves, right? So, but they are waves nonetheless, it's a form of energy. And as I read more and more about that, and then I started to realize that this was similar to other technologies that are perfectly fine, perfectly acceptable. And then, you know, I started to do research on this particular type of wave, whatever you want to call it, uh, sound waves, and I realized that they had been studying these for quite a while when it came to bacterial infections and using them in other countries for various purposes. And it's safe. So I was like, well, this is very interesting. I wonder how you, know, you find these things. And then I realized that you know, it's a wave generating machine. My physics colleague, my physics professor colleague knows how to make one. You know? So but here's, another, here's where another one of those weird coincidences happen. At the time, Literally, I had stayed up all night and gone into this deep, dark hole on Rife machines and all the rest of that stuff. And the next day, my niece who lives in, uh, she lived at that point, she lived in New York City, came up for a visit and she was talking, you know, she had just found out that Kaylee was having all these problems with Lyme disease. And she said, oh, you know, I know somebody who had Lyme disease. And she told me the story about a gentleman that they made friends with when they were in France. And he was an, you know, this, this whole long story about his life and how he was this very active person. He got Lyme disease. He was really, really sick. He almost died. His wife almost left him. Then she said, and I quote, and then he discovered this weird machine and he used this weird machine and he got better. Remember, this is the morning after I had stayed up all night reading about the Rife machine. And for her to say, you know, he used this weird machine, I was like, wait a minute, do you mean a Rife machine? And she said, yeah, that's it. That's, that's the weird machine that he used. I don't under, and I said, can I have his phone number, please? So she put us in contact and I started the conversation with him. And as a result of his experience, which is another remarkable story, he actually partnered with a company that made Rife machines. And so I was able to purchase one through him. And we started using that right away. But in the meantime, I'm also a scientist and I'm thinking, this is weird. You know, like my niece, you know, it's like the first impression is, what is this weird machine? And I said, I'm going to do some experiments because I need to know some stuff, right? So I, at that point, I partnered with Dr. Anthony Holland, who was at Skidmore College up here in Saratoga, who had a plasma tube, which is a helium-filled tube with a frequency generating device, which in other words, he generated the mechanical waves that go into the helium plasma. Plasma being the fourth state of matter, weird stuff happens in plasma. That's the best way I can put it. (laughs) Everybody listening, just suspend your belief for a moment and just let's take all this as if we were to go into a physics classroom, it's real. (laughs) It's real. Plasma is real. It's the fourth state of matter. 
And strange stuff happens in plasma, in the plasma state. That's the best way I can put it. So long story short, working with my students who are doing undergraduate research, I recruited four students to help me with this project. And the project included using that particular wave device to, first of all, look at what happened to Borrelia in culture with, under the influence of the sound waves and then also compared to when, you know, their regular state of growth. And then as a result of those experiments, I started doing more experiments on bacteria that were slightly easier to culture but also were known to form biofilms in culture and were also antibiotic resistant bacteria. So these are more typical bacteria. Growing spirochetes in culture, especially Borrelia, it is, it, I won't say it's difficult, but they are not your average bacteria um, to grow. And the, the methods that were devised to grow them were tedious. So we actually took almost a year to come up with a way to grow these bacteria reproducibly and watch them over time before we even started any experiments with them. So that being said, you know, in under the influence of the uh, frequencies under the sound waves, we were able to disrupt the biofilm structure of the bacteria, of the Borrelia. Okay, so in other words, the sound waves in culture. This is in culture in experimental conditions. The sound waves actually broke apart the biofilm. So that was finding number one. Finding number two was, all right, so I wanted to do growth experiments. The problem being with Borrelia, it takes a long, a long time to do that, and I wanted to speed up the rate of these experiments. So I used two other bacteria, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is a, you know, the biofilms were discovered using Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And then I also used MRSA, which is methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, which is yeah. an antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Yeah, I've had it in my previous life, music, theater, dancing, I've had friends have horrible MRSA infections, and they've actually had to have chunks of muscle cut out of the body because it was that or lose, lose leg or possibly die. So a very virulent infection, just to give scope. Yes, it can be. Again, just like really there are different forms. So there, But the invasive form can be deadly and it is antibiotic resistant. So with those two bacteria, I was able to show that not only can I inhibit their growth, in other words, the Rife machine alone inhibited their growth, but when we combined the Rife machine with very suboptimal doses of antibiotics, 10 times less than the minimal inhibitory concentration, we were able to kill them. So under the influence of the waves, the antibiotics were able to get to evade what the bacteria were doing to resist them. And we were able to kill them. That was very obvious because we did growth curves over um, 12 hour periods of time. So meaning growth curves, you actually measure the growth of the bacteria as opposed to what we were doing with Brilliant was just observe them over time to see what changes, physical changes occurred. And we were videoing those changes over time. In this case, we have data that actually shows that we could decrease the number of viable bacteria in those cultures by half under the influence of rife in very suboptimal doses of antibiotics. The rife alone inhibited their growth, but they were able to come back from that. So in other words, the rife alone for our 12-hour window would stop them from being able to reproduce, but within 24 hours, they were able to start reproducing again. Wow. And so you actually have some, you had some video of this so you could see what the sound waves did to the bacteria. What did that look like? Just interesting minds that want to know. 
So a biofilm umbrella is, it's hard to explain. It looks like a gob of snot. <laughs> is it, is okay. it, is it a stretch of the imagination? Has, if you've, if you've ever looked at a kombucha culture, like it's almost like a, do you know what a Scooby is? That someone I would, do. Is I that do in the world of, of what we'd be thinking about? Okay, so that's a giant version um, okay. <laughs> of that. Yeah, so you know how they, they make those really large, disgusting, slimy things. So think microscopic, okay? But when you look at them, you can actually see these biofilms forming. And they, you know, first you have these long stringy bacteria that are just all kind of hanging out together. And then you can actually see them build what looks like a microscopic SCOBY. And then when you watch that under the microscope, under the influence of the sound waves, the edges start to fray. They actually kind of form bubbles and blow up from the outside to the inside. The longer you expose them to the waves, the more of the fraying from the outside to the inside occurs. Interesting. Yep. So that's what happens to the biofilm, which means that over time, sound waves go through everything, right? Yes. Think about your cell phones, right? Your cell phone, you're sitting here using your cell phone is coming through mm-hmm. the walls of your house, is coming from the cell tower that's five miles away. So they go through anything. So these are things that are able to, you know, bypass the failures of antibiotics to get to those tissues because your body's just not delivering them there. They're being delivered everywhere in your body. So that part of it, when I finished those experiments, I had assured myself that this was real. And then actually, interestingly, during the time that we were doing those experiments, other papers had been published that, and one of them, in fact, was, be, was published by a Department of Defense researchers who were using it to try to kill Acinetobacter baumani, which is a biofilm-producing antibiotic-resistant bacteria that was infecting wounds that were soldiers, right, who had been blown up and had wounds that got infected with bacteria, they were using these waves and successfully to treat those antibiotic resistant. And actually not in, that this was a study done with mice, right? So they, and they were actually able to show very conclusively that the, basically reproducing our, our results. So I felt very confident that these effects were real. And, you know, looking at other, it's like, well, are they safe? Is this something that could cause damage to other parts of your body. And if you've ever had an MRI machine, you know, if you've ever done an MRI or a CAT scan or any of those things where you're, they're using waves to create images, everybody's done that. And those are safe and approved for, you know, all sorts of uses. So yeah, the, my attitude is they're safe, they're effective, they're, you can get one and experiment with it yourself if you feel the need to do that. I mean, you know, in my case, I had science to, uh, you know, I had my physics friend teaching me all of this, reteaching me, because I did have to take physics, but it's just sort of like crash course in physics, how all this worked. And then doing the biological experiments convinced me that this is a real technology that should be further looked at. Explored. I totally agree. And now, so with the Department of Defense and looking at these biofilms that would be altered by a sound wave, and in in your experience, was there a frequency that worked? Was there a range? Yeah, using different sweeps of frequencies. And a lot of that came from the research that Dr. Anthony Holland had been doing, where he was actually using it to look at parasites, so protozoa, 
And his interest actually started with cancer cells. So he could watch, you know, in real time, he uh, spent a lot of time watching uh, the waves, what the, the influence of the waves was doing to cancer cells. And he was actually getting very good results with that. And then also, and that, that's actually the frequencies that we chose to do with Borrelia was, uh, and actually all of the, the different microbes, we chose to do that. So he was the one that chose the frequencies, but those were based on calculations done based on DNA, the nucleic acid sequence and DNA of different organisms, which was research that a lot of the rife frequencies nowadays now are coming from that research, which is IP, uh, you know, it's the purport, um, proprietary information. And, you know, I, I could not tell you how those calculations are done. So it was, I, I don't want to say it was guesswork, but it was close to that. Now, what Rife did originally was to just sit there for hours and hours and hours on time and just like do one frequency and watch what happened and then try the next and try the next. And he was working with Staph aureus and a couple of other bacteria, which didn't actually even have names at that point. So that would be a fun job, you know, to sit there for six months and do one frequency at a time. Now there's sweeps. So this is a sweep of frequencies and then on to the next and on to the next. Sure. And from my understanding, you know, being in this world for only, you know, studying sound and frequency and magnetics for the last 17 months is that it's possible. And I've heard this from multiple different scientists that it's not always that you hit the exact frequency, but you could hit the harmonic range lower. So if the frequency that you're looking for is 300 Hertz, you know, if we're looking at it like little musical scales, we can go all the way down. And if we're in the harmonic, we can get a beneficial effect with a frequency or range that might not be as hard to listen to, if that makes sense for the body. Because if you listen to a really high frequency, it can actually hurt your ears. But if you can get somewhere in a harmonic around like, you know, 1100, 2200 Hertz that you can find benefit as well. Well, and that's the magic of the helium plasma that I was without going into details, but, you know, so a frequency goes into the helium plasma and it is emitted in harmonics. So that's the magic of the plasma tube, which is that glowing tube that it comes with some of the Rife machines or, I mean, the original Rife machine was built around that helium plasma. So yeah, that's the magic of the helium that I was alluding to. Weird stuff happens. Well, the weird stuff happens is you put one frequency in and it comes out, you know, in a bunch of harmonics. Wow. Do you have any understanding why or how that happens when it was explained no. to you? No. Me no, neither. it makes my head hurt thinking about <laughs> it, actually. So it's like, you know, spiders. It's like, no, I take your word for it. I believe you. But that's what happens. And that actually, you can measure that. You can measure the, what you put into it, and then you can measure what comes out of it using other devices. So, yeah, I've seen that. I've seen yeah. that. I think that's amazing. And obviously, if anybody has not watched Dr. Anthony Holland. Professor Anthony Holland's TED Talk online uh, using resonant frequencies to shatter specific cells. It's absolutely fascinating. So we, we know this is real. We know this is happening. I think the other thing that's really interesting for me are two kind of veins. And then I, there's one more thing I want to talk about also is that we have this, you know, I think we can almost be scared into, it's like you want it to be one thing to bring your body back into balance. And from my understanding and experience as a human being, that it's usually looking at multiple factors of in, information input. So like you said, like diet, 
sleep, water, mental health. Like you said, you were experimenting with sound waves, but then you got a better result when you had a suboptimal dose of antibiotics. Now, I've heard the same thing to be true in certain cancer treatment centers, that they can bring someone into a fasted state, we'll go back to the fasting, neuroprotective elements, one-eighth, one-sixteenth the dose of a chemotherapy agent, and they get the same results without any detrimental effects to the body. So I think it's important to remember that while you're building your paradigm to heal because, man, I wish there was a generic roadmap that everybody could follow for this. And right now, I don't think we have it. You almost have to get out there and you have to be your own advocate for change. You've got to be your own scientist. And there is good information out there but we do need to put together the pieces of the puzzle that bring you forward. You know, as you were saying, like, can you put a frequency through a plasma tube and have benefit? Yes. But you can also use other technology that uses a magnetic field to deliver frequencies. You know, we've got these, you know, or you can stand on a plate and have a direct connection. I mean, there's so many different ways to do it. And it just depends on your body. But these things, sound does help the body to come into balance. And, you know, it it is possible to challenge your belief system on what we can do to help ourselves out. I mean, I, I see this to be true. I hear the success stories. I know it's real and it's fascinating. My question I want to ask you is, with the advent of new information, new technology, one thing that I believe would be so helpful would be better testing for. Lyme. And like you said, early detection means you never go through any of this. So can we talk about that a little bit and and your background as a scientist and maybe how you're contributing to that field? Sure. So I told you that, you know, one of my roles is as the scientific advisor for an organization called Focus on Lyme. So the head of that organization is Tammy Crawford. She's another mom. I mean, our daughters are almost the same age, this basic same story. Difference is She's in Arizona. So at least in New York State, people know, you know, it's like Lyme disease is always sort of, you know, understood. She's in Arizona where there was no, there's no Lyme disease in Arizona or so that was so the So you've thought. been told, yep. <laughs> yep. So we, another, you know, the, the weird little coincidences that happened. Anyway, we ended up being put together because we recognized, you know, each other as moms and it was the third party that put us together. And so anyway, we started talking and, you know, Focus Online was born because we both realized that had there been an accurate diagnostic test available that would have said when they started showing up with symptoms, you know, gosh, let's do the test and see if it's Lyme disease. Because, you know, one thing I got to say about the current state of Lyme disease testing the test is based on an antibody response and the bacteria delay that response. So they are able to tell the immune system early on, don't produce antibodies, and then they can actually influence what antibodies your body actually starts to produce. So we're measuring a small subset of those antibodies um, in, these, in these tests. But the point is they don't even show up for the first four to six weeks. So a test is gonna be negative, even if you are infected, if you are infected for you know less than a month, let's say. So we also know that early, you know, in the spirochete form, the bacteria can be killed by antibiotics when they are still in the modal swimming form. But from the studies that are being done at Tulane University with non-human primates, the period of time between infection 
and establishment of biofilms is less than 40 days. So that means they are leaving the bloodstream, going to those tissues and starting colonies within that 40-day window. So the window of time where you could actually catch them while they are still in their active spirochete form is very limited. So with that in mind, the idea is we need an early test because if we could test somebody at the time of their tick bite, for example, or in the early stages when they have a flu-like illness in the middle of summer and it's like, oh, it's a viral infection, go home and, you know, we could test them at that point, find out if it actually is Lyme disease and start that treatment early. You could prevent long-term symptoms and in 80 to 90% of patients. I mean, that the science is pretty well established. If you have, if you are treated early, then you are not 80 to 90% of the time you will be fully recovered and with no long-term issues. 10 to 20% still go on to have long-term symptoms. So obviously that doesn't work every time, but there also is no way to know if that was due to a previous infection. But the point being, after that point, the success rate for antibiotic treatment goes down profoundly and nobody is willing to hazard a guess as to, you know, so if you've been infected for six months, like my daughter was infected for probably four months before that antibiotic treatment started, you know, obviously that was not a successful treatment. But the point being, that's the treatment that infectious disease docs say cures everybody. So there are no options beyond that short-term treatment. So the test that's needed is, I, well, I mean, there's two necessary tests. The first one that I think is the priority is to be able to test people early in the disease, so early in the infection so they can get treated promptly and avoid those long-term sequences. The other is a test for what I want to call chronic Lyme disease. So a way to determine if somebody who has these long-term symptoms, is it due to Lyme disease or could it be MS or could it be you know, myasthenia gravis, or could it be some other type of illness? We need to discriminate Lyme from those. And then we need treatments for those patients, which by the way, that is work that's being done at Duke University in the lab of Dr. Neil Spector, who just very recently passed away and a huge loss to the Lyme community because he not only was the most amazing human I think I've ever met, but he also lost his heart as a result of Lyme carditis. He had to have a heart transplant. And therefore, you know, when you are affected by something, you tend to make that your life's work. And he had done that and was very, very close. His research is continuing with his colleague, Dr. Tim Haystead. And because I'm keeping track of that, I know that they are actually very close to a treatment that is able to seek out bacteria in those biofilms and um, attack them, just like cancer drugs targeted therapies do. And because he was a cancer, uh, Dr. Spector was a cancer doc, he took his research in that field and applied it to Lyme. And that's where the success is coming from. So that's treatment for chronic. On the test side, like I, I was mentioning that there have been no new types of tests that, you know, the, the tests that everybody seems to think was the best serology is not effective as a diagnostic test. So it has become a priority for NIH to look for, uh, to fund research to try to find a new diagnostic. There's no funding for it. NIH in their strategic plan um, has said, we need to do this, but there has been no funding put forward to actually do it. 
So, yep, it's a priority, but, you know, not right now. And as a result, I have to say that in the 10 years that I've been working on this, that the private philanthropic organizations that have that sprung up around Lyme disease because so many people have been affected, like Global Lyme Alliance, Bay Area Lyme Disease, and, you know, Lyme disease.org and other organizations, the Cohen Foundation, for example, are funding research. And they're funding research that is leading the way in terms of understanding of the biology and also, you know, trying to identify an accurate diagnostic. So I think that there is great potential that an accurate test will become available. I really believe that the using the immunosignature approach is probably going to be the one that rises to the top. And that's research that's done at Arizona State University, Biodesign Institute there. And, you know, again, reapplying existing technology to this problem. That's all that needed to happen. But until there's incentive to do that, and by that I mean funding, it, it doesn't happen. So by providing funding, you know, these are the breakthroughs that are happening now. Incredible. You know, I went to iGenX Labs. Mm-hmm. That, that's what I, and it was, you know, my only downside was it was expensive to do relatively. You know, that's an out-of-pocket pay. I think I paid $1,100, $1,200 to look at, to see different bands, which I couldn't find in my New York State blood work, but I did find four or five positive bands in, in that blood work. And then is there another one in Germany? Is it Armand Labs? So Igenex uses standard serology, but what makes their test better is they look for the antigens. So, you know, Borrelia has stuff on its outside that our immune system recognizes and produces antibodies against. The mm-hmm. tests measure these antibodies. So Igenex actually measures two of those antibodies that were removed from the standard testing. They were removed for the purpose of being able to develop a vaccine against one of them. So the point being, the two most diagnostic antibodies to detect are removed, are gone from the standard testing that you would get from LabCorp or from um, you know, other regular laboratories. Igenex leaves them in. So that's why they identify patients with Lyme disease at, you know, more accurately than the standard serological tests do. Mm-hmm. So the testing um, that in Germany that they're doing is not based on antibodies. It's based on the activation of T cells, which there we, here we go with immune system stuff again, but antibodies are produced by an immune system cell called B cells. Okay. So in what serology measures are those antibodies, the, the proteins themselves circulating in blood. What Armin's lab and other labs are doing is to look for activation of T cells. So T cells are the other side, they're the cellular side of their attack cells. So they, they're the ones who are actually doing the attacking. So what they do is to see if those cells, which have memory also, okay, they have memory, if they, when exposed, to the antigen, do they remember it and, and therefore start to proliferate? That's it's called a lymphocyte transformation assay or, or prolifer. I can't remember which one, but so it's, it's just a different way of looking at the problem, you know, different cell types. I think probably the best approach would be to use both of those and combine the results because Borrelia has differential effects depending on the person's immune system. But that is certainly another way. And I, I also want to point out that test is 
FDA approved in this country for diseases like tuberculosis and other infectious diseases. So it's not for Lyme disease, but I don't know that anybody's ever submitted for FDA clearance for that technology. So, you know, for whatever reason, in this crazy Lyme world, there's been this strong stance that, well, you can only use tests that are FDA approved, which by the way, none of them are FDA approved. They're FDA cleared. That is not the same as FDA approved, okay? So there are no FDA approved tests for Lyme disease. So, you know, in other infectious diseases, other types of tests are available and are, are used from different reference labs, but in Lyme disease, oh, no, 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 that's not allowed. So the, you know, once again, limiting the chance that you could get an accurate diagnosis, limiting your chance to get treated early on in the infection where success rates are the highest. And that is, you know, wrong. That is, uh, you know, people should be given the option of trying to know what's wrong with them, but they are not. So anyway, I, I really believe that the work that we're funding with the immunosignatures is going to be the path forward. The immunosignature measures the entirety of the response to a particular infection, the entirety of it, not just a few antigens, not just to see if you're producing antibodies against a certain few select spirochete surface antigens only, but if what your immune system is doing in response to the infection. And what Amazing. I can tell you is there is an absolutely discrete immunosignature for people with early infection, and there is another signature for people with chronic. And if you have a signature, that means you can pick out pieces of the signature to develop lab tests around. So that will be published soon, and um, I'm Exciting. really looking forward to it. It's going to open up a lot of avenues because the research is showing what I said, that it's the infection. And it's the immune system, both of those two things together, which is what's causing the long-term symptoms in some patients. So there is a bacterial component and there is an immune system component. It's not all infection. It's not all autoimmune disease. It's both. It's both. And if we can figure this disease out, we can figure other diseases out too. Holly, bless you for being here. We've talked my computer to 1%. Oh my God. Okay, well, you better we better shut you off then. I, we, we're going to need to do a part two. This was so good. This is going to help so many people. And I bless you for being on the Beautifully Broken podcast. You're just such a wealth of knowledge. Thank you so much. Well, thank you too, Freddie. Well, I hope you're doing well. So take care. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Okay. Namaste. Bye-bye. Ladies and gentlemen, you made it to the end of the podcast, and here we are at season two. I think this is the beginning of something really beautiful. So one way to support the podcast is to head over to freddysetgo.com and check out Freddy's Faves, where I've linked every five-star product and healing modality you hear about on the show. Most offer significant discounts by clicking the link or using the discount code. Please know they don't cost you anything extra. And at the same time, they support the podcast through affiliations. So check out Freddy's Faves on freddysetgo.com. My heart honestly thanks you for tuning in. And if you've enjoyed today's show, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. It gives us the virtual thumbs up that we're doing things right. If you want to connect with me directly, I'm on Instagram at freddysetgo or freddysetgo.com through email. Now, this is a message from my vast legal team of internet lawyers. The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only. 
By listening, you agree not to use the information found here as medical advice to treat any medical condition in yourself or others. Always consult your physician for any medical issues that you might be having. That's it for today. Our closing, the world is hurting. We need you at your very best. So take the steps today to always be upgrading. Remember, while life is pain, putting the fractured pieces back together is a beautiful process. I love you.